Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Dr. Rebecca Van Amber, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you. Now, we actually met, uh, we were actually myself, Jeremy, and and you, Rebecca, were uh, guest panelists at the recent RMIT Story of Plastic Q&A. I guess that's sort of how we, how we kind of cross paths. That so we were. That was obviously last week. So for people that did miss it, and there might have been a few that might have just missed it somehow. Well, for some let, let's just talk about the numbers <laughs> because there was a little bit of banter going on before this webinar, and we were hoping to get a hundred people and uh, less. But on the night, I think we had only thirty-four people tuning in. Yeah. I felt like, you know, like <laughs> geez. was it a bruise to your ego, Jeremy? No, 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 no. It was a bruise to our webinar and the fact that lots of people registered, ah. but some people couldn't get yeah. on. Yeah, we had over 100 people register and uh, only, what, 34, yeah, dial in. I think there were some difficulties. My parent, my mum and dad and <laughs> Your my whole family, so 34% yeah. of I've the registration. I've got 35 cousins, so I could have doubled that number <laughs> instantly just with my cousins. Uh, and, yeah, look, I know my parents and my sister-in-laws, et cetera, had a, uh, they couldn't get on. Uh, they registered but just couldn't uh, click on the link or, or get access to the webinar. But there, it is available on YouTube now. I'm pleased to say, and we'll include the show notes in the show notes, the recording link. But Rebecca talked about a really interesting topic that it was something that I really hadn't thought about that much until a couple of our podcast episodes ago. We had a chat with uh, an amazing scientist called Dr. Haley Brainy, an assistant professor from Utah State University, and she was talking about how much uh, microplastics she was finding in these really remote areas in, in America, like crazy concentrations. And she made the comment that, yeah, it's it's the majority of those microplastics are coming from clothing. And then you stepped forward uh, at this uh, event and talked about this very thing, the uh, the fact that we do have plastic in our clothing. And, yeah, it, it was... A, a beautiful sort of, uh, you know, synergy. And it sort of just, again, sparked my interest. I, I thought, we've got to get Rebecca on the show to talk more about this issue because it's, it's an issue that I don't really know much about myself. Well, thank you for having me. And I, I should probably caveat that I'm not a textile chemist. I'm more of a textile material scientist. Like I'm not a, I'm not a chemist and I'm not a polymer scientist, but I do know a lot about fibers and fabrics. And yes, there are a lot of, I mean, I guess you could call them plastic fibers. They're not really plastic so much as they are petrochemical-based fibers. 
Mm. Yeah. They do make up a huge um, constituent of, or a huge volume of the, the global fibers that are being produced right now. It's 50 to 60% polyester, yeah. which is the big fiber that, you know, a lot of people will call plastic. But yes, mm. it's, it's basically petrochemical based. In your presentation, you included a few references, and one of them I actually did read in a bit of detail. That uh, and it it staggered me. It said something like thirty five percent of all microplastics in our oceans is believed to come from clothing. And again, uh, this isn't something that I've really thought about that much before. Just hold on, go, go back there. So thirty five percent of all microplastics is from clothing. They reckon yeah. ten to twenty percent is from tires. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, and again, it, that that's a really good point because if you think, well, microplastics in our oceans and waterways is a big problem and we know two of the key sources, once you have a good understanding of the problem, you can obviously start developing solutions to these problems. But again, I didn't know that plastic in our clothes was such a major source of this this microplastic pollution. And and the, and the study I'm referencing, and I'll include it in the show notes, is from an individual called Francesca Del Falco, who's one of the authors, and the paper was uh, The Contribution of Washing Processes of Synthetic Clothes to Microplastic Pollution. It was one of the documents that uh, Rebecca re- referenced. But look, we'll, I reckon we'll hit pause for a little bit because we can go – we'll go down the rabbit hole of this issue, but as 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 all our listeners would know – and I'm not sure if you've listened to too many of our episodes, Rebecca. Well, well, we'll well, no, how many? How many? <laughs> have you listened to one? No, no. sadly, I have not listened <laughs> to you know what? you guys. Like, as it's I was racing, busy week. <laughs> as I was racing home, I, literally, I'm sorry, I was 10 minutes late. Anyway, racing home, rang Brad, said, can you ring Rebecca? I was sitting there going, oh, God, you know, getting in there. I'm like, I bet you she's never listened to one episode. <laughs> Boom. I only found yeah. out about you guys last week. Well, this is the beauty of it. This is what Brad um, yeah. Brad was saying to Rebecca. So without any further ado, we love a good backstory. Please, yeah. like, you know, tell us, you know, who you are, where you've come from. Oh, that's my favorite question. Where have you come from? Where have I come from most recently or where was I born? That's a great, that's a okay, great question. Okay, well, where were you born? I was born in Minnesota, which is – Obviously, in the United States, it's a place that not very many people had probably heard of until this year. There's been a lot of press about Minnesota. Hey, we should put as a side note, that's where Bob Dylan's from. So, you know, Bob Dylan is, you mean yeah, Robert from, Zimmerman? Yeah, or Duluth, from Duluth, Minnesota. And we should put a shout out the kids from Beverly Hills 90210 apparently were originally from Minnesota before they went to Beverly Hills. So, you know, Shit, you know, some <laughs> incredibly crap facts. <laughs> he always comes out with these. Where, where does that come from? Oh, Look, I'm, anyway. I'm, 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 I'm well versed in Beverly Hills and Bob Dylan. So, oh, well, yeah, sorry. Uh, you're, from, you're born in Minnesota, Rebecca. Born in Minnesota, from Minnesota, raised in what I would consider to be quite rural Minnesota. And I did a degree in fashion design from a clothing, clothing design is what it was called when I did it from the University of Minnesota. And I worked in the industry for about 18 months after I graduated with my degree in clothing design as a technical designer and sort of realized that I wanted to move overseas and do something a bit different. And so I applied to grad school in New Zealand, as you do (laughs) at the age of 23 when you live in Minnesota, and (laughs) was actually accepted into um, grad school at the University of Otago in Dunedin, New Zealand. 
And so at the age of 23, never having been to New Zealand, not really knowing that much about New Zealand other than it was beautiful and they had this great university and this great program there, got on an airplane and flew to New Zealand under the sort of premise that I was going to be there for two years and do this master's degree. Well, a master's degree turned into a PhD, which turned into a postdoc, which turned into nine years in New Zealand at the <laughs> University of Otago. Um, wow. And yeah, it was it was a really fantastic experience. I kind of, I think I was able to really sort of find my place, which was, you know, that I actually really love more than fashion design. I really love textiles and fibers and I actually really love science. So I was able to really kind of merge these two things together in, in Otago and, and really sort of, I don't know, find my niche, which is a very specific niche. Um, I kind of consider myself a material scientist. So I like to do experiments on fabrics and really understand fabrics and their properties. Wow. Well, I actually knew because I'd obviously stalked you on LinkedIn. I knew that you were in, in Otago. Um, I was born in Christchurch and live in Wanaka. My mum lives in Wanaka. Shout out to Candy. She's listened to every single episode along with Brad's mum. So a question. So you fell in love with Otago. Otago is a great spot. It's bottom of the South Island of New Zealand. They've got the um, famous Highlanders. Great rivalry between where Rebecca was, uh, Dunedin, uh, where I was born in Christchurch. Basically, you're 400 clicks away from each other and you, you just don't like each other. You know, it's the pride of the South, as they say. So you fell in love with Otago. Now, the falling in love with the with the textiles. I mean, there we've got a lot of sheep, you know, a lot of a lot of wool in New Zealand. You know, apparently we have you know some of the best wool in the world, and you know exactly what's your one on one on New Zealand wool. Let's uh, let's start with that one. New Zealand is an amazing producer of wool. New Zealand has also done an amazing job marketing their wool. So Australia actually <laughs> produces more super fine wool, which is the type of wool that you're probably thinking of, which is the wool that's used in clothing. Australia is actually one of the biggest producers of super fine merino. Only about 10% of the New Zealand wool clip, as far as I'm aware, is merino wool. And that's the really super fine wool that you wear next to skin. The majority of New Zealand's wool clip is what we would call like a Crap. <laughs> no, it's no, no, it's called well, strong I, I wool. I didn't hear that. What did you say? <laughs> crap. I said crap. Uh. 90, 90, I think it's about 90% of the New Zealand wool clip is called strong wool. Strong oh. wool. And that means that it generally is coming from sheep that are not merino sheep. Merino sheep we generally are the ones. We have very few merino sheep in New Zealand, mate. We, bring, we, we breed strong sheep. You know, the merinos, you do. It's, you know, yes, there's a lot of strong sheep yeah. in New Zealand, and they're primarily bred for meat. So the meat is actually the main product coming from oh. these sheep. That's the high value part of the sheep is actually its meat, which yeah. a lot of that actually gets exported, obviously, mm. overseas. Mm. Um, New Zealand, you know, lamb, really commands a premium price overseas, especially, you know, sort of Europe, places like that. And so the wool that's coming from these sheep that are primarily bred for meat is actually more of a byproduct. Yeah. No, totally. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of great research coming out of New Zealand about wool and properties of wool. But a lot of the focus of the New Zealand sort of wool manufacturing that was happening was actually going into carpets. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yep. So most of the wool that was being used was being used for carpets. And 
one of the sort of downsides in recent housing trends for people that are growing a lot of wool that's being used in carpets is <laughs> trends for, you know, hardwood floors and, you know, trends into tiles and these sorts of things. So I don't know that the the demand the consumer demand for wool carpets is as high as it might have been in the past. Um, certainly, there's still a lot of demand for New Zealand wool in like rugs. We're also making shoes, shoes, airbirds. <laughs> yes, shoes. You exactly. know, our wool's the strongest wool. Okay, so I can see Brad, Rebecca. Sorry, I've got to stop here. Obviously, for our listeners, we're on Zoom. You know, I wasn't really expecting that. I thought you would have said, you know, New Zealand wool's the best. You know, you're a scarfy from Otago. But no, you're just boom. It's and good Brad, for carpets. And Brad, <laughs> yeah, it's all Brad's doing. He's Googling carpets. You can see him in his Zoom. You made my day, Rebecca. Honestly, oh. you, know, you really have made my day. I hate to, I hate to break it to you guys. I'm, I'm very much. Uh, and this is probably what gets me into trouble sometimes. Is that I am a scientist. I'm not a marketer. Yeah, I'm not yeah, in marketing. No, 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 I'm not out to market things. I'm trying to kind of tell it as it is. And the, and this is the thing about clothing and apparel and especially fibers, there is so much marketing power behind them. Yeah. And my aim, and basically from day one, when I went into um, starting my postgrad, when I started my master's, is that I want to validate a lot of the claims that are made by manufacturers because there are a lot of manufacturers, clothing manufacturers, making a lot of claims about their products and their performance. And I guess maybe I'm inherently skeptical, but I'm the sort of person where I want to I want to. I want to do the testing. I want to test it. I want to know: is you know, is this really the best product? Does it have this amazing performance? I'm basically a nightmare to shop with because I go into stores, especially if they're marketing, if they're selling things that are quite technical or have really specific functions. I go and read the labels and go, nope, 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 not possible. This claim completely rubbish. Like, there's no way that this is this is possible. Yeah, I guess I'm I'm probably a nightmare for marketers. No, no, but 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 that's that's what keeps the world balanced. I mean, look, I mean, I, you, you're not alone, number one. But just going into that, I mean, what type of things do they market? You know, that, what type of claims do they make? What are the most common claims that that the manufacturers make? Primarily, and this is the thing that again it really interests me is that there's a lot of claims made about the performance of fibers in particular. So we all know about merino wool. Merino wool is amazing. It is a fantastic fiber. It has a lot of amazing properties. And a lot of consumer products are marketed on the basis of their properties. As we were talking about the other day in our Zoom meeting, um, I believe you you bought a, a lovely cashmere jumper, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. It was yep. um and I actually we've I've sent you the link to it. I bought for the listeners, I went out and bought uh, a cashmere jumper marketed as 100% cashmere and it was usually half the price from what I know like for a nice jumper it was $150 or something and I think for a cashmere type jumper you'd expect it to be 350 something like that and yeah it's it's crap so Rebecca tell me why it was crap well here's my question I, I have a question for you first why did you buy a cashmere jumper so what nice. was it that appealed to you about the cashmere <laughs> what do you what do you mean it's so nice and soft on the skin oh okay yeah exactly me. exactly so but that you're well, you well, Brad, it on oh, Brad, the, sorry listen to rebecca you buy it on oh, what, what they what they're selling you it's so nice and soft and when you first feel it it was like oh it feels like a pajama top it's lovely 
So you're buying it on the reputation of, of the fiber. People know mm. it's cashmere, especially, and wool exactly is, is in the same sort of category. They're luxury fibers. They're natural fibers. They're luxury fibers. There's not a lot of volume of cashmere being produced in the world. And even with merino wool, as we've talked about, especially in New Zealand, there's not as much merino wool being produced as other types of wool. So these sorts of products become premium products because of the cost of growing them. But all of this marketing is really based on the performance of the fiber. And what I see is there's a lot of marketing on consumer products that relates to the fiber. And the funds that I, I really enjoy are, you know, fibers that have been impregnated with charcoal, or I've seen aloe vera, mm. or seaweed. A lot of people have heard of sea cell, which is a fiber that I think has silver in it. You know, there's a lot of fibers out there that are saying that they have all of these properties. My favorite one, or perhaps my least favorite fiber to um, see marketed is bamboo. So there's a lot of products out there being sold as bamboo. Bamboo, um, antimicrobial, antifungal, um, you know, green, eco-friendly, doesn't take many, you know, it's, it's grown in a very sustainable way. And, you know, the bamboo has all these amazing properties and therefore when it becomes a fiber, it retains all the, these amazing properties. And anyone that has bought anything labeled as bamboo, I hate to break it to you, but you've been bamboozled. Oh, boom. It's <laughs> my favorite joke. <laughs> it's a fiber joke for you. It just doesn't function nearly as like what they claim. Is that what you're saying? No. If you're buying something marketed as bamboo, especially if it's something that says bamboo microfiber and it's really soft, you're buying uh, viscose or rayon. Basically, you're, you're buying regenerated cellulose is what, is what I would call it. Or sometimes they call it a semi-synthetic. But basically, uh, viscose and rayon is one of the earliest sort of synthetic or semi-synthetic fibers that was developed. And you're able to make viscose and rayon out of any type of cellulose. Primarily, it's made out of wood pulp. And oh, so this is one of the main wow. problems with uh, rayon and viscose is that a lot of the, the wood pulp that's being made into these fibers is not coming from sustainably managed forests. So mm. obviously, it's a real problem if they're going out and cutting down old growth forests mm. and then mm. you know, basically dissolving the wood into wood pulp. And they make a lot of different products out of this wood pulp, obviously, and fiber is just one of them. Mm. Wow. So you can definitely make a fiber out of bamboo, but it is, it's not the bamboo fiber. The bamboo fiber would be completely different. It's just rayon or viscose that has come there. You know, the original source of the cellulose was bamboo. Wow. That's quite bizarre. <laughs> yeah, they seem to be putting all sorts of different things in uh, fabric. I know as a, as a cyclist, I've seen people with coffee grounds in their cycling outfits. Is that really coffee grounds? It just doesn't seem right. I don't know. It just seems weird. Coffee grounds is one that's quite new to the market. Hmm. but And this is the thing that I think is really exciting about viscose and rayon as a potential for actually being quite sustainable is that you can make it out of any sort of cellulose. So, you know, I don't know if anyone has heard of the Orange Fiber brand. No. We're not very fashionable people, Rebecca. Except for Jeremy and his cashmere. Oh, I feel so nice. <laughs> hey, mate, it does. Rebecca, does cashmere feel nice on the skin if it's 
I don't think I've owned anything that's made out of cashmere, to be perfectly honest. Is someone cool? Well, apparently mine's not made out of cashmere. It's a $150 <laughs> jumper online. It's not about like, you know, what do you, what, what do your cycling pants cost you? Well, I, I really want to get into that. I, well, no, no, I really want to get into the, 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 the Lycra side of things because that really interests me. But I'm keen to get uh, uh, Rebecca to continue her backstory before we get too down yeah, on Robert yeah, Hollow Lycra and Jeremy's cashmere jacket. But uh, so, but moving quickly forward. So, obviously, you saw the light eventually and left New Zealand and came to Australia in, I think, around about 2016. I did, yes. I came to, I ended up in Geelong actually, um, and was working at Deakin University at IFM. I felt really lucky to be able to come over to Australia and work at at Deakin and IFM. There's some really amazing researchers down there and they have amazing facilities and it was really just a privilege to be able to work there and and work with them and, and, you know, experience a different university and different set of researchers and different sort of equipment and you know any opportunity to sort of learn new things i think is really exciting so i guess i think that makes me a nerd well uh, well you've stepped it up a bit though so for the last two years you've actually well you left there and, and went to rmit and you are now uh your title senior lecturer in fashion and textiles so rmit for those who might not be familiar it's the geez, is it the royal uh, melbourne institute of technology is that- yes that's yeah. correct cool so currently for, for the listeners you're in lockdown. So work-wise, how, do you, how are you lecturing at university? Is it all Zoom or? We use our online portal, which is called Canvas. Not Zoom exactly, but it basically be the equivalent of, of Zoom for courses. I teach quite a lot into a course about materials and fabrics, funnily enough. I <laughs> know, <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. And a big part of that in the past would have been having students handle a lot of different fabrics mm. and, you know, touching especially a lot of different fiber types. You know, what is the difference between polyester and silk if they're both made into the same fabric structure, such as satin? So satin is actually a type of fabric fabrication or fabric structure. And obviously in this sort of situation, uh, well, well, certainly we, we haven't been on campus since March. How do you teach students about fabrics and materials and, and handling them and understanding them when you can't physically show them to them? But luckily for us, um, all of us are living in houses filled with textiles, all sorts of different textiles, all sorts of different structures. And we have been encouraging our students to go about their house and find different structures, find different types of textiles. Um, One of the great examples from even again from our Zoom meeting the other night was tea bags, um, those little Mm. pyramid tea bags Mm. or actually regular tea bags. Both of those are really textile structures, but certainly those little pyramid tea bags, um, those are made out of little nylon, little woven bags. So that's an example of textile that's around your house, but isn't clothing. And of course, like those blue chucks, almost everyone has those sort of blue sort of rags in the kitchen. Those are definitely a textile that almost everyone has around their house, but it's not a piece of clothing. Mm. I want to I want to get back to tea bags a little bit later because one of the things that you said in your prezzo was quite alarming. Uh, I have heard this before, but uh, yeah, it is quite disturbing uh, in terms of people just dunking their or a tea bag in there into their cup of boiling water. But look, for those who actually missed your presentation when we had this story of plastic Q&A event, you spoke about the specific issues related to textile and clothing. So for those who missed it, can you give us sort of a, a like a, an overview of what your presentation was about? 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So I was trying to kind of highlight the large use of plastic in the fashion and textile industry. And obviously one of the main issues is the synthetic fibers, primarily polyester being one of the largest produced by volume, somewhere between 50 and 60% of the global fiber production is polyester, which is synthetic coming from petrochemicals. And certainly we have also seen a huge increase in the use of elastane in a lot of different products. And so elastane as well is synthetic fiber. And if you're, say, blending elastane with some uh, natural fiber, you know, especially a very common blend that we see is, say, denim, denim jeans to get the stretchy jeans, you know, it might be like 98 or 99% cotton. And then having that one or 2% elastane in there to make them stretchy, obviously, and form fitting. And so what is the impact on the inclusion of that one to 2% of elastane in say, how soon that denim fabric might break down in, say, a, a landfill or, you know, however it might be being disposed of. And certainly, it makes it very challenging to, say, recycle fabrics at the end of their lifestyle if they're these blends of different mm. types of natural and synthetic fibers. Yeah. And, and you talked about the link between the plastic in our clothing and obviously this plastic entering downstream environments. So can you explain actually how that happens? So there's a lot of really wonderful research out there. Obviously, you've come across some of it already as to the the high percentage of microfibers in the ocean that are coming from textile and fiber products. And certainly a lot of that is, or almost all of it as far as I'm aware, is coming out during the laundering cycle. So the shedding of these fibers and microfibers is really happening during the laundry cycle. And there's a lot of great researchers out there who are um, sort of analyzing the the volume and the number of microfibers that are coming off of a single garment during um, the wash phase. And so you can imagine, obviously, as we're washing these garments, all these microfibers are coming out and then they're ending up in our waterways, you know, through the wastewater. Mm. So it's very easy to sort of understand, you know, washing machine to ocean happens very quickly. 
But to be honest, it actually surprised me. So I actually used to operate a wastewater treatment plant in Yorkshire in England. But obviously, when microfibers and microplastics, I guess, shed from clothes in the wash cycle, that effluent out of the washing machine does discharge straight to a sewer. And at least in most developed countries, that sewer will discharge to a wastewater treatment plant where obviously the sewage, which is, includes your toilet, bathroom, uh, shower, et cetera, does get um, significant treatment. It goes through a number of processes. But the thing about microplastics and microfibers is often they're so small, like we're talking tiny, tiny little particles, they often just go straight through the wastewater treatment plant. So whilst they are going to a treatment plant, most of the time, that, that microfiber and microplastic load often doesn't get appropriately re- removed. And then su- subsequent to that, uh, the, the uh, wastewater treatment plant will discharge to a creek or a river or an ocean or, or a bay. And then it's obviously in, into that uh, waterway environment. Yeah, it's, it's not something I, I, to be honest, it's not something I really thought about previously. But how would you get, how would you get the plastic out? Well, that's that's the point. Like, uh, yeah, it'd be very difficult from a treatment plant perspective. It would be very difficult. Yeah, like to give people an idea of what a, a treatment plant, a wastewater treatment plant, might look like. It often has a like a primary settling, or well, before that, it has a very coarse screen, so it'll re, you know capture really coarse stuff like you know rags and 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 coke cans and all whatever sort of big stuff that might come down a, a sewer pipe but then it goes to a sort of a, typically a settling chamber and then there's generally some sort of activated sludge process so that's basically essentially concentrating the sewage and using the bacteria within the sewage to actually treat the uh, water, removing nitrogen and phosphorus uh, and the organic load. And then it will go through a disinfection process. But uh, in hindsight, it's actually quite easy to envisage that microfibers and microplastics will invariably often go straight through that process without being removed. Thinking about it, mate, you've operated you know, these wastewater treatment plants. You know, like physically, is it possible? Yeah, look, in hindsight, yeah, yeah, really possible. Like, I'm just thinking there's no real fine screen. Like, the settling chamber is relying on sort of big, heavy stuff basically falling. The activated sludge or biological nutrient removal uh, is sort of focusing on more dissolved pollutants and organic loads. The key pollutants that you're generally concerned about when it comes to sewage and the disinfection is often just dosing it with chlorine or running it through a like a U- ultraviolet tube, so basically baking sunlight into it, but there's no real fine filtration process typically. And that's assuming that you've got a, uh, that the, the, the effluent actually makes its way to a treatment plant. In most developing countries, the sewage will go straight into the creek and river and get no treatment. But even in developed countries, we have these what we call sewer overflows. So in a significant rainfall event, the, the sewer literally has to sort of just overflow because it can't handle the amount of uh, excess water through infiltration and uh, inflow from illegal uh, discharge connections into the sewer. So often the sewer has to overflow. So essentially the the sewer system discharges sewage into our waterways without really any treatment at all. So there's a number of different pathways for for that, I guess, microplastics and microfibers to go from essentially the laundry into the marine environment. But to be honest, until I sort of heard Rebecca talk and did a little bit of research um, subsequent to that, yeah, I didn't really think about it. Jeez, mate, neither did I. I mean... Yeah, and and also getting back to Rebecca's original point, I didn't really think about plastic being in our clothing. Um, it's it, like, well, well, can, we, can, we, talk- can we talk about the origin of, of how it's in our clothing, please? Rebecca, yeah. come on. Yeah, it's it's mostly just the, the volume of fibres produced. So polyester, definitely nylon, acrylic, 
these are all of our main sort of synthetic fibers, um, the ones that I would say are being produced on the largest scales. And the interesting thing about polyester is that the the volume of polyester that's being produced globally is simply increasing every year. Um, and certainly the volume of, of fibers are increasing every year. But if you think about you know, especially natural fibers are more expensive. There's only so much land that you can be raising, you know, cotton on or sheep for wool, whatever it might be. But certainly there's more and more oil that's constantly being, you know, pumped out of the ground. So it's very easy to increase the production of synthetic fibers like polyester to meet global demand. And, you know, as the population increases, obviously there's just going to be more and more demand for um, textile products and these textile fibers. I'm just trying to Google it now, but BP came out today and they're going to slash the output of oil by 40% and pour billions into green investments or green energy. So, you know, just to put two and two together for, for people like myself, basically, we're, we're, you know, the big oil companies uh, are making, you know, gazillions amounts of dollars by making their byproducts, nylon, polyester, everything we're just talking about now. And, you know, I, I, I guess like Brad, I was like, okay, so, you know, where's all this plastic coming from? And all of a sudden you've got these big oil companies. And alas, we were talking with Rebecca on, um, on the recent webinar. You put two and two together. You're like, okay, radio. So electric vehicles are coming, giving a big push. These guys, the demand for oil has dropped. How else we're going to make our money, you know? So, you know, this is how we've come to, 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 to talk to Rebecca tonight is to go, okay, let's close this loop. Let's go upstream. Let's turn this tap off. I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about, guys. Mm. We're, we're, instead of going out with a mop and bucket approach and, and trying to mop up the problem, you know, 34% of um, microfibers in our ocean come from clothing or microplastics. You know, how do we actually stop it? So, you know, we're a solutions-based podcast. So, you know, let's, let's, let's throw it out there to Brad and Rebecca. How do we actually stop this from actually getting into our waterways, number one? And, you know, we've got to stop the demand for it. But I'll throw it out to you guys. Where do we start? I guess from my perspective, before I pass that to Rebecca, I think identifying that there is actually, this is a significant issue. Like before hearing Rebecca talk, I never would have considered uh, the fact that 35%, an estimated 35% of all microplastics in our marine environment are coming from our clothing. I would never have thought that was the case. And then it makes you think, okay, well, where's, how, why is that the case? How come, what, what is the plastic in my clothing? I, I'd never thought that polyester and, and lycra um, had plastic, like polyester's plastic and, and lycra has a lot of plastic in there. I never would have thought. You're running an oil, yeah. basically. Yeah. I, 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 to be honest, I never thought about it. Um, and now that I do know about, sorry, I, ne- I know the, I guess to some extent the magnitude of the impact in the marine environment. I know the clothing is a big source, but yeah, getting to back to Jeremy's point, okay, now I know this is an issue. How do we actually go about solving this? And that's where I pass over to Rebecca, really. And this was one of the points that, you know, we sort of, we had such a short time the other night when we were talking about the story yeah, of plastic. Yeah, it was too short. And I think that that particular film really sort of, um, conveyed this point much more clearly than I could, um, and it's and that's one of the things that I liked about that film is that they talk about a lot of the things that 
we talk about in the the degree that I'm teaching, RMIT, which is a Bachelor of Fashion and Textiles in Sustainable Innovation. So that's the the degree that I'm really teaching in at the moment, um, where we're basically talking about how do we change the industry? How do we change the fashion industry? How do we, you know, especially for those of us that, that love fashion and we want to engage in fashion, but we want to do it in a more sustainable way and not do any harm, you know, what are some of the strategies that we might employ to sort of fix the industry? Because certainly it's being called out as being a real big problem, as we now have realized due to the amount of petrochemicals and things that are being used in, in fibers. And the thing that for me right now is a little bit scary is that there's so much pressure and on us on the consumer, you know, consume less, buy less, buy better, you know, we as, as you know, fashion companies, we wouldn't be producing these garments if there wasn't consumer demand for them. And it's the consumer that wants these these items. And that to me, I don't think is really fair. And that's one of the things that I think the story of plastic illustrated so well is that there are these companies that are producing all of this plastic. And, you know, certainly fashion companies that are producing all of these garments. And they're also driving demand through marketing and a lot of really clever clever marketing through social media. They're actually producing and driving demand for these goods. And so to put all of the sort of pressure on the consumer and saying it's up to them to dispose of the garment at end of life, I think that's really that's not really fair. And I think the thing that, that for me makes it really obvious that these companies are out for, for profits and not people is the great example of the cashmere jumper. Which well, That's what I'm about back, to say, supply and demand. This is a perfect example of a company that is only interested in sales. They're only interested in the sale of their product. And they're, they're selling you their product, and if the product fails and you're disappointed and it ends up being a pilly jumper. But, let, but, but let's, let, let's talk this through. So I send it through to Rebecca. Rebecca comes back to me and goes, what's it called when it, it um, gets all the dots on it? Um, pilling. Pilling. Okay, so yep. it's pilled up. You know, I'm sitting there going, it's, it's buggered. Like, I don't even wear it to the office. It was quite smart. But now I look like I've, I've been rolling around in the paddock, mate, you know. <laughs> and, you know, before we were sort of talking about this, I'm like, well, what do I do? You know, is it beyond this, you know, period? I mean, do I wear it out? Do I, you know, send it back? And, and Rebecca was like, well, actually, you can send that back and say, look, that's actually not right. You shouldn't do that. And But until then... I would have gone, oh, this jersey's buggered. I'll have to throw it out. You know, would, would I buy another one from them? Probably not. Would I buy another cashmere jumper for a similar price from another brand that promised me a better story? Probably. You know, it's, um, well, mate, well, that's what fashion is, mate. You're into yeah. Lycra. Yeah. I like good jumpers. <laughs> it's fine, you know. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You're, you're right now, you'll, you'll get off this podcast and you'll go and look at your Lycra and say, go get some Lycra bread, actually. Go 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 get some lycra. Go get some lycra. Okay. Yeah. I'll back in a sec. Yeah. Well, let's see where his lycra is made from. You know, because he's a big he's a big man on. Um, obviously, Brad's away from the microphone right now, guys. So uh, he's an avid vegan, massive environmentalist. Anyway, you're back. I am back. Cool. Sorry, I am back. Uh, look, so I'm holding a pair of uh, my funky trunks, which are a swimming swimming costume. And I, I do have a pair of funky trunks. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, yeah. Look, uh, and it does said it does say, and this is something I swim in in the pool. So I swam like three and a half k this morning, up and down, and and uh, it's a hundred percent polyester. So now, no, that's pure plastic. I, I honestly, I didn't didn't realize. I, I got my uh, my jersey that I wore for Ultraman, which is like a big sort of cycling. Uh, it's a cycling costume. 
it says 83% polyester, uh, 17% spandex. What What's spandex, Rebecca? Oh, elastane, but that's just the branded name. But what? But is it still a oil-based? Yep. Synthetic? So spandex. Um, yes. So that was in we, the story of plastic too. Spandex. Tell, tell us about yes. this again. Well, so elastane is the generic name. Spandex is like the brand name, or Lycra is like mm. the brand name. And I think they came up with spandex. They there was a funny name that they came up with the the name of spandex. I forget exactly what it is, but elastane is just the the generic name of the of the fiber. Am I right in saying, you know, how you get like skinny jeans that are slightly stretchy? That's because they've got spandex in them. So they can buy. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, yeah. I'm just looking at one of my cycling jerseys again, 100% polyester. So it's basically all, all three of my outfits that I just grabbed, they're 100% plastic. Yes. Far wow. I, I honestly had no idea. Here you were cycling around, big green, you know, green man. I'm a vegan dude. Okay. But isn't that interesting? Because we've, you know, obviously that's what that's what comes down to you. So you're we're wearing plastic, gobsmacked. I entirely gobsmacked. But to be honest, with Rebecca, look, I don't. As a guy who rides and runs and swims, I don't think I've got any choice. Like, uh, no, you don't. And and the thing is that these fibers have really wonderful performance. Hmm, There's a reason yeah. that elastane is in a lot of products. Is because it enhances the performance or the fit of the garment. And the other thing is like. A lot of people out there think that fibers are either sort of good or evil. Like there's kind of a black and white perception of, you know, polyester is the worst and organic cotton is the best, you know. And actually, it's really not that simple. And I go around a lot telling people that there's no perfect fiber and and there's no, you know, there's really no perfect fiber. You know, organic cotton is not, you know, it's not going to be the fiber that saves us. Um, in terms of our environmental production and environmental impact of clothing. Because for something like polyester, yes, it's synthetic, it's derived from oil and petroleum, but the amount of water that's used to produce polyester is much, much lower than the amount mm. of water used to, say, produce cotton. Mm. You don't you can actually dye polyester without using any water at all. So yeah. there's actually some some good things about polyester. And mm. And the other thing is that because, you know, a garment that's, say, 100% polyester, you're much more likely going to be able to, say, take that and recycle it into another type of plastic product or possibly back into polyester again because it's a, a, a single material. And also because it's a thermoplastic material, you could potentially melt it down and turn it into something else. Can I, can I just chime in? Jeez, I'm, I'm at risk of getting stuck from Brad here. But... Um... <laughs> But no, this is one of my favorite coats. Um, I bought it in Paris. It's from a company called Sandro. It's quite expensive, but I've anyway, I love it. Uh, it is the body is made up of 70% wool, 20% polyamide, uh, and 10% cashmere. <laughs> uh, the body lining is 100% polyamide padding, 230G slash PC. Not sure what that re- means, uh, Rebecca. Uh, and 100% polyester. The pocket lining is 100% cotton. The rib is 49% acrylic, 45% wool, 5% polyamide, and 1% elastane. There you go. So basically, I've got a, I've got a mixture of oil, wool. Oh my god, blows your mind. But, but even if, even if Jeremy had a, a, a 100% polyester jacket, who, who recycles their clothing in terms of who puts it, takes it to a recycling facility? Or is there even a recycling facility for clothes? 
there's some textile recycling in Australia, and I think believe there's some in Victoria, but it is very limited. And that's the the problem I think in Australia is that we don't really have the infrastructure mm. to be recycling these sorts of products at the moment. So you know, I think in Europe there's um, a lot more textile recycling that's actually happening, but certainly here in Australia it, it's not happening on any sort of scale. Mm. Uh, the potential is there. You know, as we've been talking about, you could potentially recycle something that is say 100% polyester but there simply are the facilities no mm. one no one is doing it and part of the problem is that garments are so cheap mm. they're so so cheap it's so inexpensive that why would i be you know recycling but but um, everything's like that guys um, well, yeah. you know you, you you go and get a big screen tv you buy it for $1000 and you get 3 years out of it and it and it you know craps out you're like well what do I do? Do I go and buy another one now because it's, it's it's they're that cheap? And then you've got to throw mm-hmm. the whole thing out. And that's the same mm-hmm. with everything that we live in at the moment. You know, it's it's not just textiles. But but it's worth noting that clothing is apparently is a, a significant source of microplastics in our waterway. So at least yeah, whilst we often can't do much about the, the big screen TVs and and items that uh, you know we buy and and need to dispose of, certainly if we just focus on clothing. I guess just for the purpose of this podcast. So, like, so you're telling me recycling is not really a, uh, an option currently. We probably can't rely on personal choice because, look, ultimately people will want to wear lycra, spandex, well, no, 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 hold on. polyester. No, hold on. If you just didn't wash your clothes, you'd be sweet. <laughs> Brad, you know about that. <laughs> I bathe. I bathe once a month, whether I need to or not. <laughs> no, 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 no. But let's talk about let's how it, let's talk about how it gets out there. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. true. Okay. You know, so from what I know, it's obviously through washing your clothes, uh, and then from drying your clothes. You know, going out. There's no filters, or there's no. Oh, we haven't found any filters. I think we we're talking about on the previous podcast mm. that 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 actually filter for micro um, fibers. You know, outside your washing machine or your dryer. You know, if it goes out and you start drying your clothes, it goes out. So uh, that's the only two ways. For, or apart from wind, what else would be good? It's primarily washing. And luckily for you both um, is that I have to happen to have a lot of knowledge about laundering. <laughs> I've done a lot of actually research into laundering. Um, my, my entire master's thesis was looking at laundering. <laughs> which, wow. I know. I did, you know hundreds of loads of washing as part of my research, which people are probably like, oh my gosh, that's so bizarre. But it was actually really informative. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.